Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 10, Dream a Little Dream of Me. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing child abuse. If that's not something you want to hear us discuss, you can skip this episode either for now or entirely. We don't mind. We just want you to feel safe and take care of yourselves. Thank you. This episode scared me. It was a tough one, wasn't it? What is the one thing I keep saying I don't want to happen on this show? Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of things you don't want to see happening on this show. (laughs) No one's allowed to hurt Bobby. This was a tough one. Shall we try to get the recap done so that we can dive into why it was hard to watch? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. As I said, we open with Bobby running from something, but then it turns out that it's all a dream, but he can't be woken up. And the boys find him and he's like in this weird kind of coma state and the doctor can't figure out what's going on. But it turns out there was another person in town just like this who was a doctor who was doing experiments about dreams. And it turns out the person he was doing the dream experiments on got hooked on the dream drug and became a dream killer, Freddy Krueger style. But in doing so, he may have learned more about Dean. So now Dean's a target for his possible next dream attack, even if they save Bobby. And then it just becomes a lot of playing in Dean's head and a lot of Dean introspection and a lot of Dean opening up and coming out about a lot of things and overall just the best Dean episode ever. And they do eventually kill the guy. I think he might die. We don't really know because Sam may have murdered him in his sleep. That's a really weird way to end the episode. But Dean's ending is so wholesome and magic and perfect that it's worth it the end time. This is honestly, upon rewatch, an episode that I absolutely adored. I'm happy to know we both agreed this is a fun episode or at least a good episode, not a fun one. Definitely not fun, but certainly good. Shall we head into the long game? Yes. I'm very sorry to tell you this, Drew, but this is not the last time that Bobby is going to be lost in a dream-slash-comatose-like state. But it could be a good dream, right? It could be. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not. I'm just pretending. Let's continue before I think about it more. It's also not the last time that we're going to hear about dreamwalking, and in The next time that we're going to to see or to hear about dreamwalking, the lore is going to change a little bit. We also get an in-passing confirmation that Dean has dropped acid before. I kind of saw it as a throwaway joke, but I know it's always worth like thinking about the things Dean says, and it raises questions of how early he started with the drugs. I would also like to note the super extra vivid colors in the dream sequence, and it's not going to make sense right away. But the next time we have another dream sequence, I want us to notice the colors as well. The entire dream sequence, both the uh, oversaturation of the sunlight and even the undersaturated, like almost sepia tone still felt very vivid and did some really cool camera work with uh, close ups and uh, quick cuts. We also find out how Bobby became a hunter. It's like you said, everyone got into the game somehow and it's just it's never a pleasant story. Poor guy. This is also not the last time that one of the brothers will confront himself. Not even surprised by that. That just seems like par for the course this kind of show. It's a really good narrative device, I find. Oh, it is. And this episode did something with it that like drove me crazy, but in the best way. And we'll get there later. And Bella steals the Colt. 
I, mm, I was so ready to trust her for once. I thought we finally had a moment of her being wholesome. Nope. <laughs> good for her. <laughs> I mean, good for her, but damn it. <laughs> also, also, just so I can say it now, you better check your pockets, boys. Not literally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bobby. You poor idiots. <laughs> With that, shall we head to story time? Yes, we shall. I was very excited to meet drunk Sam again. Just Sam at a bar and I was like, ooh, what Sam are we getting? And then drunk Sam showed up and I was very happy. I know. So yeah, so like you said, he's at a bar, he's drinking whiskey, and he's basically lamenting not being able to save Dean from hell. Now, if we remember correctly, the last time that we saw drunk Sam was in Playthings and he was telling Dean that if ever he went to Dark Side, Dean would have to kill him. This time around, he's telling Dean that no one can save Dean because he's the one who doesn't want to be saved. And he says, how can you care so little about yourself? What is wrong with you? And the joke answer is, oh, you don't want to pull at that thread, Sam. But the serious answer, in my opinion, is that there's nothing wrong with Dean. The fact that he thinks so little of himself and and feels like he has a lack of value, I think is pretty normal given how much trauma and abuse he's been through and that none of it has been healed at all. Yeah, I mean, at this point, he doesn't believe in his own self-worth He puts a lot of blame on himself for so many things that are not his fault, but he has chosen to blame himself for. We get a very good example of this in his argument with himself later on. I mean, he really just has a terrible image of himself that he does truly believe he's not worth saving. The same could be said about Sam, too, you know, when he thought that he would go dark side, right? Dean would have to kill him. You know, there's something so, so angsty about the fact that, like, the last time we saw Sam in this state, it was because he wanted his brother to kill him. And now he's in this state again because he wants to save his own brother so badly. Sam doesn't drink often, but when he drinks, he has a pretty good reason to do so. Speaking of Sam, what did you think of his dream about Bella? Steamy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Elaborate, please. It was so out of the blue. Like, I was really trying to figure out how it fit into the episode with all the talk about dreams. Like, is this a side effect of, like, the, like, are we going to learn that it's, like, a part of this town that it's a dream thing? Like, why would this become such a thing? But it was just so really unexpected that it, like, it raised more questions than I think it should have. I also tried to tie it back to the theme of the episode, and I had trouble. But if anybody out there has any ideas, please let us know. But my observations about this is that, like, between this dream and him being happy about, like, skin mags in A Very Supernatural Christmas, it sort of feels like the show is trying to show Sam as more interested in sex than before. That was my first thought also, but it seems so ham-fisted. And the fact that he is so uncomfortable after he wakes up from it. Like, there's the obvious joke where he's like, I'm not going to get up just yet. Give me a few seconds. Like... I understand where the joke is coming from. We've all been guys in high school and shit happens. The way they played it up, it's almost like this has never happened to them before. And that I really find hard to believe. The reality is that they are two guys on the road constantly with each other. There is no way that there isn't some kind of system in place. 
I feel like you're right. It's the show is trying to help us see Sam does have a sexual side or at least a like non a romantic side. Like, I don't want to know how far you want to push it, but it also feels very blunt and that even Sam is doubting it. I was wondering if maybe the show is doing this specifically to show a change or an evolution in Sam, you know, because he is getting over Jess or if it's to show another way, well, Jess and Madison, or if it's to show another way in which he's becoming more similar to Dean. That, I think, is what I really landed on when I watched this scene. This is part of his evolution to becoming more Dean-like, especially given the fact that we as an audience have already clearly seen how much Bella connects with Dean and how, like, if you were to pair them off at some point in relationships, my money would be Bella and Dean over Bella and Sam. So it almost kind of continues to push the narrative forward of Sam having to become more like Dean. Did you clock the moment when Dean asked Sam if he was dreaming about Angelina Jolie or Brad Pitt? Oh, 100%. And the fact that it's not like it's not played as an in-universe joke, like this is the kind of thing you'd expect Dean to say and then immediately like, have a little like snickering at like, oh, I made a gay joke. He doesn't. He, it's like a serious, legit question. Yes, oh, it's very adorable. It's true. That it is how kind of how that comes off because I felt it was a little weird of like a no, no. <laughs> you wonder if the second one is a question, but I read the second no more as like no, that's not what I was dreaming about. But like it's okay you if do you, you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, now Bella, when she says she's going to help them but not for them, for Bobby, because Bobby saved her life once. I just want to remind everyone here, you know, including you and me, Drew, that Sam and Dean also saved her life, and she immediately put them in danger afterward with Gordon. So I'm finding it a bit disjointed that the boys would just accept this as an answer without being like, uh, we saved your life too. Now that we know that ultimately her goal, I mean, whether... I. You know what? I choose to believe her goal really was to come in here and steal the cult or something of equal value. Like she knew that like, oh, they want me to bring them a drug that will knock them out for multiple hours and leave me with all their expensive, cool stuff. Yeah, I can totally do you a favor. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It feels so manufactured because I feel like the brothers would be smart enough to say like, no, 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 we're paying you for this. We're finding a trade because I want to know this is a done deal and not some weird, sketchy favor you're going to hold over us. And I think that's the part that kind of annoys me. It's it's the kind of stuff that, like, breaks the suspension of disbelief for me because I'm like, oh, come on. Like, even had she said, like, I know the joke kind of the the, the joke, the the getaway seems to be the end that, like, Bobby was never involved in saving her. It was all a lie. So she had an excuse to come see them. But she could have just said, this is my way of apologizing for Gordon. Yeah, not lying and more believable also. <laughs> right. Anyway. So we briefly talked about this in the long game, but we, uh, we find out that Bobby killed his wife, who was possessed by a demon, and we see her telling him all of the things that he thinks about himself. If he really loved her, he would have found a way. And I just think that it's important to say at this stage in story time that these are thoughts that are Bobby's thoughts, not his wife's. Precisely. This is where in Bobby's head, these are all Bobby's thoughts. They are manifesting in a way that makes it, I don't want to say more believable, but more they're manifest, manifesting in an image that suits the scenario and the message. 
And this is also where we start to see Dean fighting for Bobby to wake up. Like, you're not going to die. I'm not going to let you die. You have to snap out of it. Like, we, we're sort of hearing Dean, like, wake up in that sense. And he also tells Bobby that he's like a father to him. Now, to put words on subtext again, Dean is telling Bobby that he matters to him and that his life has value to him which are all things that Sam has been trying to tell Dean this entire season. I mean, I'll be very honest, in the moment I got so caught up in the whole like fatherly connection here that I didn't even put that together till right now, so thank you. As as obvious as it looks at now, I'm glad you brought that up, but this really is another one of those awakening moments where Dean can put himself in someone else's shoes and realize, oh wow, what have I been doing? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I remember talking about this with you, you know, like the whole you know, be my brother, like I need you anchoring him in in reality and the fact that he matters. And, and that's exactly what Dean is doing with Bobby in that moment. Okay, now that we're like, we've like dipped our toes and now we're like swimming <laughs> in this episode, I want to talk about the parallel that I see between Dean and Jeremy. So from the first time that we meet Jeremy, everything to me is telling The movie posters in his room, the coffee machine with no sugar around, the beers in the fridge, he's wearing a necklace, the colors that he's wearing. To me, all of that is showing how much attention the show has invested in making us see Jeremy as a mirror for Dean. I definitely noticed most of those. I did not catch the no sugar near the coffee. That is such a you thing to catch, and I love it. I went back. I had to. (laughs) I was like, are there any like creamers or sugar? Like, is there anything? And it was, there was nothing. Of course, that could have been kept somewhere else. But again, like, this is one of those things where I don't think that this show makes mistakes about. But anyway, they make mistakes about a lot of stuff. So we never know. We also find out that Jeremy has charcoal Wilbrand syndrome, which amongst other things means that he can't remember, he can't dream because of brain damage that he sustained. So of course, like this syndrome has to do with your brain being unable to basically conjure up visual images of things that aren't in front of you directly. Kind of like you can't imagine those things. But I think in this case, like on a more, in a more literary and less medical sense, and to link it back to Dean, not being able to dream can also mean not being able to imagine a future for yourself. And that's a direct symptom of post-traumatic stress, which is something that I personally see Dean as having. So like Jeremy's medical not being able to dream because of brain damage that he sustained because of his dad that used to beat him is Dean's not being able to dream up a future for himself because of the emotional damage caused by his own father. I need a minute to like stabilize myself from the shock from that. But like, if it weren't so heartbreaking, it'd be beautiful symmetry, but it's heartbreaking. (laughs) In the dream sequences, you can see that Jeremy is like carrying his dad's baseball bat and Dean is carrying a sawed off shotgun, which I think is a callback to the one he made when he was in the sixth grade to keep Sammy safe under John's orders. So both men carry something of their father. It makes a parallel between emotional violence and physical violence. You know, Jeremy's father physically abused him, whereas Dean was much more emotional abuse. But how both can have very similar outcomes, even if they're not directly related, they can lead to a lot of the same things. Yeah. Let's fast forward to Dean's self-confrontation. Okay. Would you be able to walk us through your feelings in this scene? (laughs) I had a lot of thoughts about how it was going to end. 
And then I quickly realized that wasn't the important part. The important part was seeing these two sides of Dean, the side of Dean that is like the extreme negative side. Like we never like, you know, Dean is a pessimist, but he's never outright negative. And this was the side of him that was really all the dark thoughts, all the things he was trying to bury. I mean, it sounds cliche, but this was really the worst side of Dean. All the truths he sort of believed about himself, but had to tell himself were all just in his head being let free. It's the whole idea of those are Dean's thoughts, not his dad's, right? Like those are thoughts that Dean has. Of course, you know, John is partly in big part responsible for them, but the same way that what Bobby's wife was telling him were Bobby's thoughts. These are Dean's thoughts now. Precisely. These are the things Dean thinks of himself, but does everything he can to not show that he believes but deep down, they are constantly there in his mind. I think it's no real surprise to us as viewers, especially with the kind of deep dive that we're doing, because like we've already made those things out from the subtext of the show. But this is really the first time that Dean is confronted with them, that it's out in the open, that it's explicitly said, and that it's it's there for everybody to see. Yeah, I was going to say, just this entire episode, this whole confrontation that Dean goes through, and even his revelations afterwards are very much Dean putting words on everything we've been saying for the last few seasons. And some of the things that he says are, dad knew who you really were. And that line made my heart sink because I thought, oh my God, John knew about Dean's queerness, but it's very quickly followed by a good soldier and nothing else, daddy's blunt little instrument. And this we really need to remember for later. It comes back a lot <laughs> and until very, very late in the, in the series. And then he also says, your own father didn't care whether you lived or died. Why should you? And there we have it. The answer to Sam's question from the beginning of the episode. It is so painful to watch this scene because as good a front as real Dean puts up against Dream Dean, you can see the veneer starting to crack. And like, again, as you know, I am no John apologist. But it's also not entirely true. We know that John did give up his life for Dean. In no way am I saying that that is any way a redeeming thing for John. I want to be very clear about that. But I'm not sure that it's true to say that his father cared, didn't care whether he lived or died. And that's why I'm saying those are Dean's thoughts. Of course, this is what John has led him to believe. But these are Dean's thoughts. Your thoughts and your feelings and your opinions are always your own. Yes, they can be informed by outside sources, but ultimately they are yours. Then we get this cathartic moment when Dean snaps out of it and fights back. My father was an obsessed bastard. All that crap he dumped on me about protecting Sam, that was his crap. He's the one who couldn't protect his family. He's the one who let mom die, who wasn't there for Sam. I always was. It wasn't fair. I didn't deserve what he put on me, and I don't deserve to go to hell. So good. It's really powerful. It's a very powerful realization. And if you can't tell, I am tearing up. Oh, 100%. I feel it. I don't think there's anything for us to analyze there. Like, it's very clear. It's explicitly said. Like I said, this episode, both this moment and again, the conversation, what Dean says to Sam in the car at the end of the episode are very much, I'm done bullshitting. I am laying everything on the table. This is fact. Well, this is also showing us, and I mean, if we can, you know, just like tap ourselves on the shoulder a little bit, it's showing us that we were right about our analysis. Like the things that we've seen in previous episodes, this is what it has led to. So our, our analysis was sound. Good job. High five. High five. Whew. 
And then we also have, you know, the the latest fear that starts to take hold is that when he goes to hell, he's going to become a demon. And that's that's going to be a very important thing for the rest of the season. I'm going to save it right for the end of story time, but I have to come back to that at the very end. Let's also briefly talk about what happens to Jeremy at the end of this episode, because you mentioned it before. So let's let's dive into that. So he's beating Sam with a baseball bat the same way that his dad used to do to him. And again, we have a very visual image of passing down and recreating his own trauma. And then Sam tells him he took the dream route too and has power over the dream. And then Jeremy's dad shows up. I just want to scratch at that a little bit because he shows up screaming, you answer me when I'm talking to you, boy. And this echoes what we just heard Dean say to himself as John's words, look out for your little brother, boy. And it's the same tone. So I'm going to posit here that Sam conjured up Jeremy's dad, but made him say what he's heard John say before. Oh, that's very possible. Because we don't have all the answers about what the dream route actually does. Like the, Again, the metaphysics of it are very vague in this episode, so we don't quite know. But if Sam is in control and he didn't know Jeremy's dad and all he knows is that he beat him with a baseball bat, who exactly do you think is going to come to his mind first? Always good to know that you can pull on the resource of your abusive father and the things he did to your older brother more than you to help fight crime. Finally, this episode ends with Dean telling Sam that he doesn't want to die and go to hell. But the actual ending of the episode is really quite chilling. This is what I wanted to get to because I had to go back and rewatch this. We very clearly have the moment when Dean is first confronting other Dean, Dream Dean, Demon Dean. And he tries to do the whole, I'm in charge, this is my dream, I can wake up whenever I want, snap my fingers, I'm awake. And he keeps trying to do the snap and he can't. And the final scene of this episode is Dean snapping his fingers in the dream world with demon eyes. I want to read into this, but I don't know how to exactly. What does that tell us about the Dean who is now awake? It's his deepest fear, I think, at this point. There's something with that demon side of Dean that has taken much more root in him than it had before in a much more physical way, almost. I don't think there's some kind of crazy, like, this is Demon Dean who came out of the dream and the real Dean's trapped inside. That would be amazing, but is way too much. But I feel like this demon Dean inside of him has taken much more root. You know, that's a really interesting way of saying it. I think that I think the way that I read it here is that he is seeing this possibility more as a probability now. But I mean, like if we can rewind just half a second, having Dean just flat out tell Sam, I don't want to go to hell. I feel like every season is just waiting for them to have that emotional breakdown in the car together and speak their truths finally. And this is probably the most satisfying one so far. It is because we've been waiting for this one for so long. And I'm not talking just about that he doesn't want to die and go to hell, but I think in this specific case, but just that like he cares about himself, like he wants to live. This man doesn't want to die. We want him to see that he has worth. And this is him admitting I have value. I am a real person. I don't want to die. I don't want to go to hell. I want to live like that's just like a Christmas miracle. And I'm so proud of him. Yeah. Shall we hop on down to critical time? Yes. So for this week, who do we have as our rating and our directing team? Because I'm definitely going to say director, major points. This episode was directed by Steve Boyum, who directed Crossroads Blues in season two. And he is going to direct other episodes until season 10. But he hasn't directed all that many so far. So, so far we have Crossroads Blues and this one. 
I really enjoyed Crossroads Blues, again, from a directorial standpoint, so I can see a connection there. I just felt like the camera work in this episode, especially within the dream worlds, there was something very lucid about the whole thing that really kind of made it feel like a dream. There was this tendency to zoom in on faces and kind of put a slight tilt to the lens, like a fisheye lens almost, so it kind of felt a little bit out of like, out of proportion. It was disorienting in the best way. I mean, that's what you want from a dream sequence, right? Oh, 100%. And the writers were Catherine Humphreys and Sarah Gamble, so they had never written together before for this uh, series. But this season, Catherine Humphreys wrote Bedtime Stories and Sarah Gamble wrote The Kids Are All Right and The Infamous Fresh Blood. I really enjoyed Bedtime Stories too, so okay then. And The Kids Are All Right was a great episode as well. I'm assuming we'll get them to write together again at some point? I'm not sure, actually. I don't, I don't think so. I'm always intrigued to see writers work together to see like what comes out of each of them. There are certain traits of Sarah Gamble's episodes we often make fun of and don't love, but I really didn't get any of that in this episode. I feel like Sarah always tries to make uh, the boy. I mean, I was going to say tries to make Dean very, very straight in her episodes. And in this case, it didn't come across, but we did get Sam in a weird like sex dream. So I guess that was the compromise. But OK, I don't quite know how the magic happened, and I am not sure that I want to dissect it all that much. It just worked really well. I think they did a really wonderful job. Speaking of wonderful job, would you like to tell us a little bit about the lore of this episode? And I think it needs to start with a big pat on the back to the team for today. I asked for this and they gave it. We have a herbology lesson that was accurate. Oh my God, right? I was so happy about that. Bear with me, I might butcher the name, but the official Latin name of this herb, the Selene Undulata, which actually is colloquially known as the African dream root, as it's been nicknamed, is in fact a plant used in rituals by the Zosa people of South Africa in rituals, often spiritual journeys that are used to undertake the path to becoming a shaman. So we actually have a plant with its proper origin, with its proper use. And as far as I can tell from the few illustrations available online of it, it seems to match the ones they show in the uh, photos that uh, Bobby has in his closet. So I was so happy about that, Drew. You have no idea. Yeah, no, I was shocked. I literally asked for a real herbology corner and we got one and I got to help deliver it. I'm sorry I stole that from you. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm very happy about this. Well, I'm about to make it a little less happy, if I may. This lore segment is unfortunately very short because there isn't much about this online. I spent the better part of two days looking up about dreamwalking, this drug, this, uh, this the, the Zohas people from South Africa and their rituals, and they're really isn't much. I found links to very expensive books I could go look into that may have some more information by people who studied them, but there really isn't a proper source of these people sharing their story. This is unfortunately something we do see a lot, and it's something I've been very critical of, of this show, in the way they do kind of use Indigenous peoples and First Nations peoples in a way that kind of feels like stereotypical because there really isn't that much out there unless you get a professional or a researcher or a scholar who really knows these subjects. And even when I did look at a few different websites from people who were sharing these stories, I had no way of validating how, you know, correct it was. I had blog posts on Reddit. I had people's websites. I had people writing books, but I have nothing to show me what connection they have to these people to prove that what they're saying is worth something. Unfortunately, we live in a world where you kind of have history written by those who rule. And unfortunately, in a lot of the world, colonization has taken over a lot of these cultures. And 
mostly wipe them out. So most of their stories are just being told within their own circles and not getting out to other people. I guess this lore segment kind of comes the lesson of the dangers that colonization and settlers have on indigenous cultures. It just goes to show that when you are working with legend and lore and myth and storytelling from a culture that is not your own, a culture that is not as widespread in its you know, common stories, it's important to really have a good source for that information to be able to do the proper research. I am very happy that you're talking about this because the very first thing that I wanted to mention in my critique of the episode is that they got herbology right, which was really surprising to me. <laughs> I love how we both just like, that's our entire critical time was just like an applause to whoever did the herbology research this week. And the only thing that I saw that was different from what we saw from the episode is that you're not actual, you're not supposed to be drinking the tea, the actual tea. You're supposed to be ingesting the foam that forms when you brew it, which makes it sound truly like a witch's brew. <laughs> That just seems like one of those like details that like, yes, you would leave out in a show because limited research, but also like that is so intriguing. Now, the second thing that I'd like to do with my critique segment is to clarify something when it comes to performing, you know, scientific experiments, because in this episode, they're saying that, you know, oh, nobody knew about his experiments. I'm like, oh, just so everybody knows, because again, I feel like the general public doesn't really know about all of the ethics rules that researchers and scientists have to abide by. And those are really important. Those rules should be there, should not be relaxed in any way. So this is not a critique of the rules. It's just more informing of what those rules are. Researchers and scientists can't like just perform experiments without anybody knowing. Like That can't happen, especially not on other people. There are a lot of regulations in place to ensure that your experiments are ethical. Those regulations take root in the atrocities committed by the Nazis during the Holocaust and other instances of unethical experiments like the Tuskegee experiment, for example, where American scientists wanted to see how cephalus would spread if it wasn't contained or treated. The problem with that is that they infected a black neighborhood, they withheld treatment, they withheld standard treatment, and they never told anybody what they did. So those are examples of things that basically created a very strong push for all of the rules and regulations that scientists today have to abide by. Of course, it was a good narrative device, but it just wouldn't happen in reality. I, I know about like ethic policy, ethics policies and like having to get a board to approve experiments, but I also see where it's the kind of thing that is very... I don't want to say easy, but very understandable for a show to just sort of not bring up because the general public might not know this. so They can get away with it, which just seems like a very them thing to do, ironically. That's kind of what I'm getting to, that this is this is just not representative of reality. This is not how it happens. And it's not just about getting through the ethics board. It's about understanding the history about why we're there. Like no scientist just has to go through an ethics board. There's a culture around ethics in research, and it's, it's very, very, very serious. And particularly when it comes to vulnerable populations who can be more, more easily coerced into agreeing to be part of scientific experiments. And that's why, you know, of course, you're, if you 
participate in an experiment, you can be paid, you can be compensated for it, but the price, the, the, the compensation should never exceed the risks because you don't want to be preying on people who have no, who need money in order to, to, to survive. This week, would you have a personal reflection and call to action to share with us? Very surface level, despite how deep the episode is and how deep this actually should be. But much like Dean talking to Dean, we are our own harshest critics. It is so easy to look at your work or your goals or where you are, how you're feeling, critique yourself or put yourself down or not see the value in what you're doing. In that reflection of how hard we can be on ourselves, my call to action is to remind ourselves, like, you know, we did a few minutes ago, a little, you know, pat ourselves on the back sometimes. We did a good job. I do a good job. There's a balance between pushing yourself to your limits so you grow, but also remembering to reflect on where you have excelled and celebrate yourself. So my call to action, very simply, is just to remember what good I've done not just when I'm told I did good, but when I look at the things I've done and see the good I've done. That's so interesting because I have a very similar one today. I, I feel like we often do. I feel like this segment, even if we get there from different angles, we tend to kind of like find a similar call to action or reflection. I think it's because the episodes tend to like push towards like a, a thought process. If I can just take a step back and get a little meta for a second, that is the whole point of the segment. It's to understand what the show is trying to tell us. And it shows that we're not just reflecting on this as if it's, you know, theoretical. We're thinking about it in terms of our own life. Like this is, quote unquote, real to us. Like what is the message that this episode is trying to tell us to apply in our own lives? And this is what we're doing here. And this shows that we are doing this seriously and with rigor. And we should recognize that in ourselves and be proud of it. This was actually a really hard episode for me. I'm sure that I've mentioned this before, but I actually have post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the symptoms that I still experience to this day is nightmares and night terrors. The same way that you have a f your fear of mannequins and the, the mannequin episode is going to be really hard for you. This one is particularly hard for me because this is, this is my reality. And so my personal call to action this week is to be kind and gentle with my inner child to parent her in the way that she would have needed to be parented. And I think this is going to make more sense once I discuss my Crossroads deal. Well, before we get to the Crossroads, shall we see what the community has to say this week? So this week we're doing things a little bit differently. We received a long voicemail from Lucien, and we'd really want to make sure to answer the entire thing. So we're going to cut it in half. We're going to listen to half of it today and respond to half of it today. And then we're going to listen to the other half next week. And we're going to respond to the other half next week. Hello, Carrying Wayward. You guys are brilliant as always. Um, my name is Lucian or Lulu and my pronouns are he, they. And I sent in a voicemail previously. But I've just finished listening to your episode, The Kids Are Alright, and it deeply resonated with me. So I wanted to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about parenthood and in particular, like motherhood in Supernatural and like get your thoughts on it. And in particular, Mary, because you are also a, a mother. I'm a single parent. My child is 13 months old and I'm 22. And Mary described this feeling of isolation that motherhood can bring. And that is a feeling I'm really familiar with as a new and younger mother. So when Dana, the woman in the episode who uh, has a changeling instead of uh, their child, 
when she approaches Lisa and begins telling her her fears about her child. You talked about Lisa's response and how she says that you can't talk like that and how that shut down the conversation and made Dana feel unheard and alone. And I agree. But the thing that popped into my head immediately was that those words also come from concern. There's this sort of horror narrative surrounding mothers doing terrible things to their children or single mothers being crazy or inattentive. We receive so much scrutiny and shame and blame for our circumstances and hold ourselves to such high expectations because of what society has taught us to expect from ourselves and our role as mothers. And this is deeply centred around misogyny. For example, when single fathers raise children, they are praised and elevated onto pedestals and heralded. But single mothers, who make up the majority of single parents, I feel are by a whole criticised or seen as coping or doing their best despite not having a father present in the household because of this heteronormative narrative that is propelled and that like the best family dynamic is having a mother and a father. So knowing this and experiencing this herself, I felt like Lisa was in her way warning, even protecting Dana from this scrutiny. She didn't say Dana was crazy or lying or wrong. She said she couldn't talk like that because she's right. Because of this heteronormative narrative and the scrutiny single mothers face and the misunderstanding and perception of mental illness, there is a very real fear single mothers face that society will, given the opportunity, say that we aren't capable of being good parents or our children would be better off in a more conventional setting. And this is why threats such as like calling child protective services, accusing women of being crazy or legal threats are so often hurled at single mothers. Because our worst fear is that our child could be taken from us if we don't live up to society's impossibly high standards for mothers and fight the often demonization of women. So when I heard Lisa say that, I really felt like Lisa was warning Dana, knowing how society views situations like these and are quick to deem women as crazy and dangerous. That's why she can't talk about this. And I think this episode is so powerful because it I mean, surprisingly for Supernatural, it does a really good job of showing functional and independent and thriving single mothers rather than the trope of the single mother who is coping by a thread and the father not being present being uh, detrimental to the child. I mean, Lisa pretty much embodies that, which is amazing. I also want to talk about how they handled Dean. There is a lot of debate as to whether Dean is Ben's father. I personally think he probably is, and Lisa has every right to have kept that to herself as she is the parent. And I like how the show does leave room for interpretation there because what it essentially means is that the show is saying that ultimately it doesn't matter. Ultimately, parenthood is earned and a choice, and Dean being biologically related to Ben has no bearing on whether he should assume a parental role or not. As with adoptive, mixed and rainbow families, being a parent is a choice and biology is sometimes just circumstance and I think this really strikes home with the found family narrative that Supernatural puts out. Thank you so much, Lucien. I really appreciate your voicemail in its entirety, but we'll talk about the other half next week, like we said. I had never thought about Lisa trying to protect Dana 
And I love this take so much. I really, really do. Because like you said, Lisa is also a single parent who knows exactly what people will think of Dana if she starts voicing these things out in public. And she's trying to tell her like, you can't talk like that. Doesn't mean you can't talk like that, but it means you can't talk like that around other people. And she does follow up with, we're going to get you help, which I really, which always felt strange to me that she would say, you can't talk like that, but we're going to get you help. And I think that your interpretation of it is the one that kind of makes all of the puzzle pieces fall together. So thank you so much for letting us know about this. There's also another thing that you said that truly well resonated with me also as a single parent is that parenthood is earned. I've been raising my son by myself since day one. Honestly, while it has been incredibly difficult, particularly because of how other people view single parenthood, it's also incredibly rewarding in so many other ways. Biology is only one part of things. And that's true, I think, for adoptees and for people who live with their parents, right? You can't just say, I'm your parent because we're biologically related. Like there has to be a need or a want to, for connection. And I think that that's what you're talking about when you're talking about earning parenthood. It's about wanting that connection and putting in effort with your children. I find that those are things that, that our parents didn't do all that much. And so parenthood for me has been a lot of unlearning things and relearning things properly. And what's been truly wonderful for me is that I didn't have somebody else there to tell me like, oh, no, this is the way you should do it. Like I was truly able to invent my own parenting style. And so I know that you're at the very beginning of this journey with a 13-month-old. I have an eight-year-old and I, I'm still also very much at the beginning of this journey. If there's a possibility for you to see this as a positive in the sense of like, you get to decide whatever you want to do, like that's what I definitely always like to focus. And that doesn't mean that that's also not the hardest part because then you always have to decide what to do. And that's also really hard in its own way. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I really, really appreciated your voicemail. Talking about the idea of found family, which again is such an important focus in this show. That is so good. You're right. It doesn't matter if Ben is biologically Dean's child. That is so ancillary to the fact that he, in the moments we've had, played the role of a good father. And I truly believe in the dream scenario where he got to be with Lisa and raise Ben, he would be a good father. And I think that is so important to strip away this layer of just because someone's parents are biological or, you know, like that whole classic nuclear family thing I say with like the most zeal in my throat doesn't mean they're good. Like, I am sorry if anything the show teaches us that just because you have the proper biological parent doesn't mean you're going to turn out all good. Right, John? Oh, we're going to get to learn about John's parents eventually. Oh my God, I am not ready for that mentally. <laughs> no, you're really not, actually. <laughs> oh God, no. Oh God. Thank you for this voicemail. It was stupendous. I can't wait to discuss the second half next week. But just to come back to this half to just really send it off properly, you're right. It is so important to support each other and to support every version of a family and forget that there are 
these social contracts that say one is better than another because at the end of the day it's a proper parent that matters it's how you parent it's how you love it's how you connect thank you on this beautiful sentence would you like to go to the crossroads to make some deals how about you get us started this week what happened to jeremy we clearly have sam summon jeremy's father chases him away we get kind of like a moment of jeremy waking up and possibly dying of fright it looked like maybe this raises several questions for me one is jeremy dead like that's never really confirmed and you kind of think it's the thing they would confirm like even if it's just like a bobby made a call to a hospital and confirmed they you know recovered the body and he's actually dead or something and then if he is dead does that mean sam murdered him technically i think the answer is given to us at the beginning of the episode when they talk about the dream route and they say that people are in comas and then they die of a really big fright or something and i think that it works also again like if we're trying to to tie this back to dean i think that it works that his own death would be at at the hands of his father which is kind of a weapon that sam used against him so is this kind of like, this feels like a very loophole way to be like, well, Sam didn't kill him. It was the image of his father that showed up in the dream that Sam may have summoned with possible or not possible psychic powers. It just seems very gray area of like, did he die? Yes. Was Sam responsible? No. I just would have liked that wrapped up a little bit better with a little bit more of a bow. You know, that's interesting because I kind of like that open endedness because it this is one of the cases where I say, you know what, this is one a great way of doing open to interpretation because you can decide what happens to Jeremy. I think he dies at the hands of his father uh, because it works well with the rest of my analysis. While Sam doesn't do the killing, Sam is instrumental in the dying the same way that Sam is instrumental in Dean dying or potentially dying. He made the deal for Sam, right? And that's kind of what I'm saying in this case. Okay, because that was my issue. I was like, I kind of, I'm with you. I believe that he did die at the hands of his father in this dream. But that, to me, puts Sam more or less at fault. And at that point, Sam is just killing a poor drug addict, essentially. Albeit a murderous drug addict, a drug addict. Well, I was going to say, we don't seem to have like that many scrupules i guess when it comes to other things that just you know so i i i wonder if maybe our empathy for jeremy doesn't come from the fact that we see him very much as a parallel for dean yeah i you know what and this is why as much as i understand the where like again like this being a crossroads deal i would give up the open-endedness of it where we can be more interpretive to maybe give us a little more detail. So even if we are still interpreting, well, is it Sam's fault or is it not? To at least have like the finality of like, is he gone? Yeah, I don't think you could possibly get the answer of whether or not it's Sam's fault, right? Like that's up to you to decide. But whether or not he died, I don't know. I thought it was pretty clear to me that he died. I mean, like that's what I took away because it only makes sense that way. But it seems weird that they wouldn't have done something to, like, pardon the pun, but put a nail in the coffin. So I wish that instead of talking to himself in the dream, Dean had talked to John. That instead of Demon Dean, 
it's John that you see. And then that way, we could have had the distinction of him truly telling off John, but being gentle with himself, his inner child, you know, in this case. So this is not verified. I have not been able to find data to support this, but I remember hearing somewhere that the show couldn't get Jeffrey Dean Morgan back for this episode. And so they decided to do it that way, which I get. Um, so again, please don't, don't quote me as a source here, but it would sort of make sense. But again, in a world with no limitations, I think that getting Jeffrey Dean Morgan back for this episode would have been interesting and it would have been a really powerful visual. Yeah. And I think this one really like is the perfect definition of a crossroads because I truly don't know which I would have preferred him confronting himself and hearing himself say those things or confronting John, because I think it gives two very different outcomes. I mean, not outcomes per se. The outcome, I think, could still be the same. But I think the emotion of the scene and the realizations of the scene and where the power balances would change because the fact that it's himself is so, like, confronting your inner demons literally, whereas putting John's face on them almost lets you disconnect from them a little bit and see John as the villain and not your own self-doubt, even if the idea is that John placed those doubts in him. I'm going to say right now, like, that is, like, one of the best Crossroads deals we've come up to in a while. Thank you. Because I'm now legit playing the scene in my head on a loop, picturing both of them, and I could not tell you which I'd rather. I think I would have liked to see a distinction between how he talks to his father and how he talks to himself. Like, how he talks to his father having put those ideas in his head and to himself, his his inner child, for dealing with those ideas. And I think that this is something that we, that I wish we had seen Dean do a little bit more. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Schulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Lucien for his message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at CarryingWayward. And do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to read them. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. Our next event will be a live recording of our Season 3 recap. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. One moment, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> I didn't know it would make you this angry. <laughs>